The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hi, folks. I'm WWE Hall of Famer Hacksaw Jim Duggan. If you'd like hearing knock-knock jokes or jokes about your grandmother, go somewhere else! Oh! oh my god, this is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip Podcast. This is Cody Rhodes, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. Good, how you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man, what's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. This is a uh, special visitor, the hardcore legend, Mick Foley. It was a very rough feud to go through with Rick. It was a very bitter feud, too. He certainly didn't like me at that time, and I didn't like him, and we were both trying to be at the top. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't beat me. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid up, they knew they could kick the out of me. At this point, well, I'll be at a signing, and little kids will come up to me and throw up the click sign or talk about, oh, your ladder match with Sean at WrestleMania 10. And I go, wait a minute. You weren't even a glimmer in your dad's eye. But yeah, bro, it's really flattering and, and amazing and humbling. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two men power trip of wrestling. Good Lord, look at Cornette. Oh, my God. 
He hit him right in the face with that telephone and it busted him from ear to ear. And now Cornette's been brought back in the ring. Somebody needs to get in here and stop this. Cornette is not a wrestler and he's being held up at the mercy of Paulie Dangerously. Randy Rose, Dennis Condry, men that we know call themselves the original Midnight Express. And they have literally burst on the scene here at the Superstation and it is nothing but carnage in the ring. Unprovoked attack, a cornet has been, I mean, this is brutality here, and the Rose and Condry and Paul E. Dangerously. Hello and welcome to another episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling. This is our flagship show, a part of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. I am your host, JP John Paz, and on today's episode, we have the ravishing one, the original Midnight Express member, Randy Rose. And of course, we talk all about his most recent pro, pro wrestling, excuse me, Hall of Fame induction down in Wichita Falls, Texas, which is an awesome honor and probably long overdue. But now he's in the real Hall of Fame, as a lot of the wrestlers like to say, the brick and mortar Hall of Fame down there in Texas. Pretty cool. Pretty great honor. Definitely deserving. A member of the original Midnight Express with Dennis Condry and, of course, Norvell Austin as well. We go into the whole history of the Midnight Express from top to bottom. We talk about how that gimmick and that idea originated. We talk all about Southeastern Championship Wrestling. We talk about Ron Fuller. And we go into extreme detail about that character, the name, and everything involving Midnight Express. We also talk about him and Dennis Condry, how they had such great chemistry. And as they travel the many territories together, eventually split up, but then get back together for the great original Midnight's versus Midnight Express angle in WCW. Really cool to see Bobby Eaton, Stan Lane, and Jim Cornette versus Paulie Dangerously, a.k.a. Paul Heyman, Randy Rose, and Dennis Condry. Just a great feud. And just think about it. We go into extreme detail on this, too. But just think about that feud and the way it was set up and the brutal beating that you heard at the beginning of the episode, of course. But the brutal beating that they lay on the Midnight the new Midnight Express, quote-unquote, and Jim Cornette as they just get destroyed by the originals. And it was just such a great angle. It was just... It had money written all over it, and obviously through the years you hear the different stories about why that kind of went south, why they didn't do more with it, what happened with that angle. They had many different bookers at that point, kind of a, a politics playing, a little bit of a power struggle going on. So that is one of those what-if storylines. It did play out for a few months there, but it could have been so much better. And obviously with Dennis leaving at the end and Chi-Town Rumble getting replaced with uh, by Jack Victory, it kind of lost all his luster, and we do talk about it in the show all about that intriguing, intriguing pay per view where Dennis is not there, but Randy continues on, and obviously Jack Victory gets the loss, loser leaves town, and there was no more original Midnight Express. And as far as Randy, we also, of course, talk about his great career going through all the territories talk a lot about all japan pro wrestling because that was such a cool time to be there with all those great wrestlers and all those great stars so we go into detail about that we also talk a little bit about his work with mda and jerry lewis and the mda telethons which i thought was a really really cool story as well now, before I send it off to some TMPT business and send it off to the interview, just want to also mention the other episodes, a part 
of and the other podcasts, a part of the a two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire, we have Dirty Dutch, Dirty Dutch Mantel, and his University of Dutch over on MLW Radio. We have Shane Douglas's Triple Threat Podcast on Vince Russo's The Brand. We have Rick Bassman's number one, Talking Tough, number two, Three-Way Dance, both available on Podcast One. And then, of course, last but certainly not least, Taking You to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard, which is available on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcast feed. So without any further ado, I'm going to send it off to some TMPT business, and then we're going to send it on over to the interview with the original Midnight Express, Randy Rhodes. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Raslin Pal. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Check out the feed for awesome past episodes, including Bruno San Martino, Sean Mike, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk. Goldberg, Ray Mysterio Jr., Arn Anderson, Glenn Kane Jacobs, and so many more. While you're on the web, visit ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. Visit our store, visit J.J. Dillon's store, Francine's store, and of course, the franchise Shank Douglas' store. For all you Android users out there, find us on Google Play and Player FM. For all you iOS users, check us out on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Automatic, and now Stitcher. And of course, check out the Empire. Yes, that is the TMPT Empire now. TMPTEmpire.com for all the latest and greatest on the two-man power trip of wrestling. is a four-time former AWA Southern Tag Team Champion, a former AWA World Tag Team Champion. He is a member of the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame and one of the original members of the Midnight Express. He is ravishing. He is Mr. Randy Rose. Randy, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, thank you, man. I appreciate it very much. Now, there is obviously, you know, all this craziness going on in the world, but what what have you been up to? What has uh, Randy Rose kind of been doing? I know you were a part of the Hall of Fame last year, but uh, you've been kind of laying low doing signings here and there. But what have you been up to? Yeah, not much on the uh, wrestling front because all this, like you said, all this junk going on, coronavirus and all kinds of different stuff going on. we got a crazy world out there, don't we? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, we've done a, a few signings there. I did uh, Charlotte last I think it was last August or so, and we had a 
just about every one of us up there, uh, from Cornette to Bobby Eaton to Ennis Condry, my old partner, and Stan Lane. We were all up there together, and we did a pretty good deal up there. It was pretty nice. Yeah, the old gathering. Very cool to kind of get you guys all together. Is that a rarity, kind of get you guys all together in a, at a signing? Yeah, that was pretty rare. Uh, I think it was T. Mark D'Amato or something that does it out of New York. Yep, Marty, yep. Yeah, Marty. He set it up, and I thought he did a he does a really great job with those things up there. And we had a big, big crowd. We sat there. Probably, me and Dennis sat at one table, and then uh, Stan and Bobby sat at the other table. And I bet we signed autographs for probably two and a half hours straight, and never got up from the table. <laughs> That's awesome. See, the old school fans—they love you guys, and they love the old Midnight Express. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as far as the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the original, you know, Midnight Express gets put in that last year. That was a pretty great honor too, right? Yeah, I was uh I was a little bit of a surprise there. Uh the the year right before I think I heard the wife and I were on vacation down in Daytona and on the way back on Thanksgiving, which was pretty cool, uh, I had an old friend of mine, Pat Rose, used to wrestle with us down in the southeastern area. He called Oh me yeah. Up. Yep. He calls me up and says, are you sitting down? And I said, well, I'm driving back to Atlanta, so I guess I'm sitting down. I said, why? And he says, well, you need to pull over. And I says, what is it? You know, and I thought, in the wrestling world, you never know. I mean, you know, some of the guys are getting older and all. I'm like, oh, no, somebody has passed. So I pull over, and he says, I just heard the news. It's not been broadcast yet, but you, Dennis, and Bobby are going to be put into the real real professional wrestling Hall of Fame in Texas. So they, Johnny Mantell and uh, all those people out there that run that thing, it's it's a great, great operation. And it was such an honor. I mean, they flew us out to Texas, Wichita Falls, me and the wife, and uh, put us up in the hotel, gave us a nice big honor dinner, uh, Nice cowboy hat with your name engraved in it, and uh, a really nice cool ring. And uh, what I understand, and what I found out, that <clears throat> you uh, are voted into that one by your peers and uh, a lot of people that you work with, and some of the historians out there. And it is just uh, anybody that's listening that has never been to that Hall of Fame. It was the original one that was up in New York, and they just moved it out to Texas. But if you've never been to that one, it is worth the trip because, I mean, my goodness, it goes back to probably the 20s and 30s. And there's so much, three stories of nothing but professional wrestling in that Hall of Fame. One of the only ones I understand as a brick and mortar building at the time. I mean, you know, you've heard about WWE Hall of Fame and all that. Mm -hmm. There's really no building. So as Scott Steiner says, it ain't no Hall of Fame. <laughs> mm. Yeah, if you don't have the physical building, how could you say it's the Hall of Fame, right? Correct. Yep. But I, like I said, it was an honor. I mean, it was it really was, and they really done us good. And uh, I never would have expected it. And one of the better things that's happened in my career in probably 15 years of my career. But it was pretty cool. As far as the original Midnight Express and kind of getting together. Not as far as 2019. I'm talking about in the 1980s, getting together and forming the group. 
where did you guys form? Like, where did that kind of team come from? Was it Southeast Championship Wrestling? Where did you guys kind of all come together? Yeah, uh, it was. As a matter of fact, uh, Ron Fuller was one of the ones that put it together that was the uh, owner and promoter of Southeastern Wrestling out of uh, Alabama and Pensacola. We were stationed in Pensacola, but we went all through Alabama and Pensacola. And I went there probably about 80, about 1980 and part of 81. And uh, got, to, got to doing pretty good and down there. And Ron Fuller came to me and said, uh, you know, and I'm, not, and I'm not bragging anyway, so I hope this don't sound braggadacious or whatever, but I, I got to, to where I was doing pretty good there, and like in second matches and stuff, and he said, I'm going to move you up to semi-mains and main events, he said, but I got a partner for him. I'm going to bring him down from Georgia. His name is Dennis Condry. So we had the long blonde hair, and, you know, we got over pretty strong as the heels, and with all the other partners I had there, probably, you know, uh, and there again, I'm not bragging. I'm just telling the facts. Uh, won the Southeastern Tag Championships with them down there, different partners, probably 13 times. And then mm-hmm. he put us together, and then we, we got over stronger then, and when he stuck us together with Norvell Austin, the three-man team, sort of like the Freebirds, and we called it the Midnight Express, and that got over really strong. So after that, we went on to Memphis for a while with Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee, and all that, and uh, it just kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and the people really got with it, which was pretty cool. Absolutely. What did you kind of think of the chemistry with Dennis? You guys seem to be meshed well together right away, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, they called his cousins down there because we kind of looked alike and had the long, hmm. long hair. And, uh, we were hanging out on the beach, had a couple of condos on the beach, and we thought we were really cool. So <laughs> we got over pretty strong together, and we gelled really good in the ring. And that's the main thing is you can always – if you have a partner, you know, like that, that you can really, really work with, you know. I mean, there's things that we could do in the ring without even telling each other or talking or anything. It's just our, our eye contact. We would know what was going to do or what we wanted each other to do. And it, it, it came out pretty good. And uh, we uh, we got along pretty good in the ring and, and everything else. It, it really came out pretty good as far as the team goes. How does that kind of happen? I mean, just the promoter, not that they're psychic or anything, but how, how can they tell, like, okay, these guys are going to work really well together? You know what I mean? Like, sometimes, like you said, you had some other partners maybe didn't match as well, but you and Dennis seem to really have great chemistry. How does that kind of just happen? Oh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I, I, Let's see if there's some of the ones I can name. Let's see, I was down there in that area. Like I said, he stuck me with about, I don't know, three or four or five different partners, you know, and, and, and I always try to do my best with any partner he put us with. And let's see, one of them would have been Norvell Austin, and there mm-hmm. was Ron, Ron Bass, and there was Ron Starr, and then uh, there was uh, there was quite a few. And then when me and Dennis got together, we like I said, we, we automatically just gelled pretty good, and everything turned out pretty good as far as the tag team division. And then I found out that, you know, all these other times before, I had done other stuff like go went to Japan a few times and single matches and all that. And I kind of found out after they put me and Dennis together that, you know, I was more or less I liked it better and I got over stronger as as a tag team wrestler. And you know, more or less when you got four guys in there, even in all the action, you know, it's just a, a lot better. You prefer then tag team wrestling over singles for sure. 
Yes, absolutely. <laughs> There's always that kind of thing where it's like, oh, well, what, if, you know, what about tag teams? But it's harder to have a good match for a tag team, right? Because four guys have to be gelling well together. And if you can kind of master that craft, I mean, it, it's just one of those things of beauty in professional wrestling. Right, very true, very true. Easier for uh, uh, four guys, if they gel together, to get over stronger than it is for just the two, you know. Absolutely. And you were tag team partners with Jimmy Golden as well down there in uh, S- yeah, uh, ECW. Yeah, that was one of the names I was trying to remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the gimmick, the Midnight Express, where does that name come from? I mean, obviously there was the, the famous movie at the time, but is that where you guys basically get the name from? Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, Ron Fuller was the one that came up with it, and uh, yeah, he gets all the credit for that. And I, well, as a matter of fact, I've seen him in Charlotte at the gathering there, and I told him, you know, I really appreciate everything you've done for my career and pushing us forward into that and uh, to that day, is, and especially being honored by the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in Texas out there, you know, as the original Midnight Express and the Midnight Express together. I said, uh, I just let him know that I appreciate everything that he's done. You know what's crazy about Ron Fuller? I, you know that he's tall, but you didn't realize he's that tall. I mean, he's like 6'10". He could barely fit in that room in Charlotte, especially with his cowboy hat on. I mean, he could barely, uh, you know, not hit his head when he was walking through. Right? He's a huge, huge guy. Very tall guy. Very long arms. I used to tell him, as a matter of fact, in the ring, this, this is a pretty little funny, I'll tell you a story. In the ring, we had a couple of guys, let's see. Uh, in the ring, when you got in the ring with him, he had his arms were so long, he would swing that punch, and that punch would wrap, slap around the back of my neck and hit me right on that back of that bone of that neck. So I'd, I'd kind of make fun with him sometimes before I'd get in the ring with him, and I'd say, Ron, I'd rather you just hit me square in the nose because that freaking punch hurts worse when it hits the back of my neck. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> There was him, but then there was the Armstrongs. We, I guess we were married to the Armstrongs for years, you know. We, we helped train Brad in the ring. It's like a OJT on the job training with Brad Armstrong. He turned out to be one of the best in the country, I believe, you know, underrated. And then there was Bob, bless his heart. He was great, too, but he couldn't. He had the, 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 the eyes were not that great. And, my God, he would lock up with you and, and actually accidentally punch you in the nose. And then he'd lock up and say, uh, how's the crowd? I can't see, but to the third row. <laughs> <laughs> well, you knew you was going to get punched whether it was an accident or not. Yes. <clears throat> you got to love that. Now, you mentioned Memphis, obviously with Jerry Lawler and Jerry Jarrett. Did you like your time in Memphis? Because I think a lot of people always think of that territory as just a crazy territory. Some say it's great. Some say the payoffs weren't that great. But what were your thoughts of your time in Memphis? Uh, Memphis was really good, I thought, too. I mean, there again, as we went in there, we went in there as a three-man team, and with Norvell in there, you know, it, it really got over pretty strong. Most most of the time in the ring, they wanted me and Dennis working in the ring and Norvell on the outside. But, uh, yeah, Memphis Coliseum on Monday night, it was, it was pretty electric. And uh, I thought it was really great at the time, and uh, some of the things – Went well. Some things didn't. Like you said, the payoffs, we weren't really happy with some of that stuff. So we kind of, you know, did our little deal there and then moved on. Four-time tag team champs, though. I mean, they definitely thought a lot about you guys and kind of gave you the ball, so to speak, uh, for sure, when you were there. Right, yeah. You know, we got the call from uh, 
Dust on that one, we got the call from uh, Dusty Rhodes, me and Dennis did, and we decided we'd hook up with Paul Dangerously, and we got the call to go to, uh, oh, wait a minute, I moved ahead myself there, I'm sorry about it. We got the call from Paul Dangerously to get back together with me and Dennis, and then went to the AWA. Got over pretty strong there. We had a big following uh, on ESPN and uh, won the AWA world titles. Got, a, got along pretty good up there. and We, we uh, won those titles and, and did pretty good up in that area. Yeah, I think a lot of people remember you and Dennis going to the AWA because he literally just left. The NWA, and, and you, you really, if you, you know, kind of in between there, but he leaves there. You guys end up in the AWA and become champions, beating Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So we we got to uh, a little bit of revenge there for the bad yeah. face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, good, good point. That kind of turned out okay. You know. Yeah. Because obviously Memphis and AWA had a great relationship for a while there. And then you guys end up losing the tag titles a few months later to a young, up-and-coming, future great tag team, the Midnight Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. Right. And who knew Marty Jannetty was going to be as big as he was? <laughs> Michaels. Shawn Michaels, yes. yes. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Michaels. What did you think at that point? Did you think, like, okay, these guys are – not they're green or anything, but, you know, okay, these guys are good. We can do something with them. Did you kind of think you can uh, mold them and have some good matches? Oh, yeah, yeah. They worked together with us pretty good, you know. But uh, didn't that didn't really take on too long. And then I think after that we got the call from Dusty Rhodes and decided us to bring us down here and uh, to Atlanta with the uh, big Channel 17 station and all out there got that call and we flew down to Texas to meet Dusty Rhodes and his famous voice that he used to say, he told all three of us sitting in his offices, this is going to be big, boys. This is going to be so big. I'm going to have y'all farting through silk panties, making all kinds of money. (laughs) Okay, that's great. And then as I told my speech at the uh, Hall of Fame deal, we were all excited about that, but uh, we wasn't farting through silk pennies. We didn't do that. <laughs> mm. uh, anyway, it turned out pretty good. The Midnight Express versus the original Midnight Express, as Dusty calls you into WCW slash NWA, really, at that time. It's going to be Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane against Dennis Condry and you. And it's going to be that kind of, like I said, Midnight versus Midnight's. Obviously, you guys have Paulie Dangerously, and they have Jim Cornette. What do you think didn't work there as far as Dusty, not, not that he didn't live up to it, but what happened there that, you know, you weren't fighting through the silk panties? You know, I don't, I don't really know what the deal was with that. Everybody likes to speculate that they were changing bookers and people and Dusty was was fired or gone and then Flair stepped in, Rick Flair and then he got ticked with them. I think it was just a, a political office thing and uh, there was no denying from any parts you know, any of the fans that's listening to this, they, they know that I'm not you know, lying or um, absolutely being truthful that those Matches, especially the first one we did with them on Channel 17, where we attacked them and left Cornet laying bloody in the white jacket. I mean, that'll be forever in people's minds. Uh, one of the biggest angles in the history of wrestling, I think, who got to cover with Bill After on his magazine. 
Uh, and then we had a good run with them for about anywhere from three to six months. And then after that, they just kind of kind of let it play down in the dirt and just run out. And then, you know, they wanted to do the big deal where uh, at the end with the Chicago Rumble, Chi-Town Rumble and all that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the, the whole situation with that, I think, and it should have in my mind, it should have went on, you know, if they had a, if they really wanted to make money and get everything over and and sell the sell out the houses, that one angle with us six guys could have really promoted that business. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like on paper and and every scenario and everything you look at, that's just money. I mean, that's great if you think about it. Like Dennis was a part of the Midnight Express. You're really an original Midnight Express. He's really the Midnight Express, but he was teamed with. Cornette and Eaton for a while and then he leaves and then Lane comes in and then you guys come back kind of for revenge and everything else uh, and you beat the shit out of Cornette pardon my French there but you, you know beat the crap out of Cornette and uh, you know it just it sets up something that could have been huge it's one of those things like you said was it the bookers was it politics it, it was Dusty kind of blowing smoke it's so many different thoughts because that just seemed like had money written all over it well, absolutely, and what's better in your eyes is uh, they were handed a a real situation to, you know, make money with, and they dropped the ball. I mean, what, you know, how could you be handed that kind of angle that was real with the names, with the uh, six good workers? I mean, two of the greatest talkers in the business, four good workers, I believe, Mm-hmm. And, yes. and you you were handed uh, an angle that would made you money for a year or two. I mean, you know, if you just kept on going, that would have just kept on making you money. So, but I just think they dropped the ball on it, and I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> yeah, and the crazy thing is that with Dennis leaving again, I mean, you kind of have the feud through like Starcade '88 and all this other stuff going on, but then Dennis really ends up leaving WCW again. And you end up teaming with Jack Victory in basically uh, the Loser Leaves Town match. So it's like, all right, that doesn't really scream Midnight Express versus Midnight Express, right? With Dennis leaving, it kind of screws it up, too. Right. And uh, there's no way that I would want to say anything derogatory toward any of my partners that helped me make money or make it in my career. You know, but uh, there's only one, th- and I, I never question him or whatever, but I, I just wished possibly that when it was done this time, see, when we showed up in Chicago, we didn't have any idea that Dennis was not going to be there, you know, and, and we were going to go ahead and go through the whole scenario, you know, number one, to make the money on the pay-per-view, number two, to see what they were going to do afterwards, if they were going to do anything, but uh we were never told and we got there and then all of a sudden it was, are you still going to do it? But, you know, I, st- I played this back in my mind over and over and over again. If I had have been told by Dennis, I probably wouldn't know it myself either. I would have just, you know, stood out and said, okay, how y'all going to do midnight against midnight, loser leave town when Dennis and Randy's not there. <laughs> right. Would be impossible. Yep. Figure that out. I even, I came up with a few scenarios and then I finally, I said, okay, well, it, this is business, so I'm just going to do business, you know, get my money, go home, and do business instead of, you know, doing something that was derogatory toward the team. I didn't want to do that, but 
Uh, I, I kind of wish I would have known. I would have played it out a little bit different. But the whole scenario, you know, is like I didn't know till I got there, and then it was too late. But, you know, I would have done a couple of things. I talked to a few of my really good close friends that's been in the business for years and years, and they've done the – sometimes in the wrestling business, I'm sure people know by now uh, on some of the stuff is – there's a lot of mind games being played in, in politics, as we call it, back in the background. Basically, I hated that kind of stuff. I, I always enjoyed and loved being out there in front of the crowd, getting the crowd excited, being able to stand the crowd up and make them get excited and hate me and jump and this and that and sit them back down when I wanted to. I mean, that that was a thrill to me. And I really enjoyed that. I did not enjoy the politics of wrestling and the backstabbing and that kind of stuff that was in it. So I basically never got into that, you know. I just kind of went out there and performed and worked for the crowd and and that sort of thing. And, you know, it kind of came down to that in the end of my career with that Chi-Town Rumble thing there. And, you know, a lot of people can say, oh, he did this or he did that, and he just wound up being a job guy or whatever. But, you know, that that's that's whatever their opinion may be. But as I'm telling you now, I didn't get into the politics, so I just did the business and I went on. And there was, as I was fixing to say, I had a couple of good friends that I asked them before I went into that match, and I said, "Listen, uh, Abdullah the Butcher was one of them. Mr. Rousey number two was one of them." And I said, "What should I do?" So they said, "Well, you can either go out there, do the deal, you know, or and I come up with two or three scenarios. At first, I was going to go out there since this was a live pay per view." You cannot script or set up or change a live pay-per-view. So I was just going to take my bags out there and walk around in front of the ring and, and uh, uh, <laughs> let the people see you and then go back, get in the dressing room, and leave. You know, if you if it's a loser, leave town, you're, lose, you're losing, and you got no future anyway, so just walk out and leave. But let them know that you're ticked and you're gone. It's very interesting that show. I mean, with De- when Dennis doesn't show up and Jack Victory replaces you, so Chi Town Rumble '89 is really kind of the 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 end of the quote unquote original Midnight Express, really, just by Dennis leaving, and then Jack Victory just kind of obviously comes out and does, does the match, and it kind of it like isn't Midnight versus Midnight. I mean, it just it just isn't. It really ended before the show started, if if that makes sense. Right, yeah. Like I said, uh, we were kind of left hanging on that one, but yeah, let's and you, let's let's move on away from that. <laughs> yeah, you ended up staying for a few months, actually. I mean, a little bit of a tag team with Ranger Ross. You're you're wrestling Rick Steiner. Is it something where you still had the contract and you're just kind of going through and working out the rest of your contract? Actually, it was. Yes, it was. And I, like I said, uh, I, I enjoyed more performing in front of the fans and being in the ring and. Uh, you know, traveling around and all that stuff. And then uh, I think afterwards I I went ahead and filled out my contract. And then I, I went straight to Japan there for about six weeks with Abdul and all. And we did a pretty good run over there. So it turned out pretty good. Yeah, you had quite a run in all Japan for wrestling for Giant Baba. So that's one of those things where Abdullah kind of gets you over there and he gets you brought in. Yeah. Yeah. I've been knowing him for years and years. And, uh, He's, we've probably been over there for probably five, six times now. And uh, he, as a matter of fact, he's still talking to this day, wanting to go back over there and do autograph stuff. And I'm like, yeah, 
my flying, my 16, 18 hours flying to Japan is is about over. <laughs> yeah, right. Isn't isn't that uh, gonna kind of not be good for the body? Yeah, that that stinks. That flight is terrible. And obviously, I mean, Abdullah doesn't look like he's in great physical shape too. So I don't know if he's gonna be comfortable making that flight. Right. Yeah. He's he's got some bad hips too, and he's he's trying to make it, but he's still hanging in there. Did you like that Japanese style, the strong style? They're a little bit more stiff. They're a little bit more snug. Do you like that style? Oh, yeah, I I really do. I mean, I always, I like to pride myself as always being a, 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 you know, a snug, tight worker. And I always told the guys, as people know now with the New York stuff, you know, it's like, okay, if, you, if you're going to walk out there like Vince McMahon and say this is entertainment now and we're really not doing this for real, then to me, what's the use, you know? But back in our day, it's it's like, you know, if I told the guys, if you hit me solid because I'm going to – if you don't, I'm going to hit you back really, really solid. Just do not hit me from the nose to the mouth to the face, you know. Anywhere else, you better lay them in. Yes. Now, as far as some working with some of those guys over there, everyone always says that during that time period, like when you were there, the you know, early 90s, All Japan Wrestling, they had so much talent going there, so much amazing wrestlers. What did you think about guys like Kenta Kobashi, who you wrestled several times, and, and Misawa and Kawada, and those guys that are kind of revered as some of the greatest workers? Oh, yeah, I thought they were awesome, man. They train over there really, really hard, and uh the Kabashi, they put me with him probably for two or three weeks straight when I got in there, and we jailed pretty good and had some pretty good matches. There was a little story I was going to tell you there right quick uh, that I forgot when I first went in there for the last time, about in 91, mm-hmm. was uh, the guys were pretty stiff with me too, you know, and, and when you first go in there, they'll they'll test you a little bit. The Japanese are, are known for that. They will test you. So I went to my buddy Abby and I said, Abby, they're hurting me, man. They're hitting me. They're punching me in the face. And he says, Randy, hit them back. So, <laughs> so I started hitting them back and they started hollering, Itai, Itai, which means hurt in Japan. And I'm like, okay, you loosen up a little bit, I'll loosen up a little bit. That's kind of the way it works over there. Yeah, right. I mean, they can't. Um... I mean, they like to kind of dish it out, but if you dish it back, it's kind of fair, right? I mean, they're not going to cry. I mean, it's just going to be kind of tough and the, the way it is, right? Right, yeah. And they 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 train really hard over there, and they could they could they would test you and they would dish it out. So <laughs> you got to be strong and tough when you go in there, especially for five six weeks at a time. Do you like how they basically treat it as a sport over there, and the media kind of covers it as a sport? Do you respect that? I really do, uh, and something that's ironic that some we were talking about uh, here pretty recently since this corona junk is is that they're having you know New York and AEW and all that they're ha- still having some matches, but they have no fans out there. Well, if you've never been to Japan, it's sort of like that. You may have two thousand people in the crowd, but You'll get in the ring and you'll do all kinds of, you know, move and run and jump and hitting the ropes and all that, and they won't make a noise. Some sometimes in some of the matches, they won't make any noise till the end of the match, and then they'll clap. You know, it used to be like there was nobody out there, 
So I'm like, oh, my God. And there's people, I've told people before, I said, with the crowd out there, those bumps don't hurt quite as bad. But, you know, with no crowd, I don't know how these guys are doing that now. Yeah, it's got to be tough, right? And you guys, in, in of your era, you're so used to kind of having the crowd not only fuel you guys, but, like, there could be a part of the comeback. You know, they're they're a part of the way you guys are working the match, right? Right, yeah. The crowd has always said there's – if you got a tag match, there's uh, five guys in the ring, including the referee, and then you probably got another thousand out in the crowd helping you make that match. And like I said – Everybody, a lot of people have asked me before, oh, my God, don't they hurt your body? This and well, it don't hurt your body at the time because the adrenaline is flowing and the crowd is pumping. And, you know, it may hurt when you get out and you go home and you lay down. But at the time, it don't because that crowd is what's fueling, just like you said. Now, as far as some of the partners, I just wanted to bring up because – this is uh, some pretty good tag partners you've had over there. You know, they'll work you in some six-mans. You'll be with Furness and LaFon. But I was thinking about teaming up with a guy like Joel Deaton, who's kind of an underrated legend that definitely was a big-time success in, in all Japan wrestling. Absolutely, yes, yes. Joel uh, was a great worker. He's a great guy, great friend, and uh, I don't know if anybody knows it, but uh, bless his heart, he just had a stroke probably about a year ago. And He's trying to make a comeback right now. He's in therapy and all that. And uh, my prayers go out to him and uh, hope everything comes out okay because he is one heck of a guy and he was one hell of a worker. No doubt about it. Yeah, hopefully he's on the uh, you know the path to getting better and hopefully he feels better very soon. Just thinking about some of the other guys besides Joel and McCann Express and all these other great guys are over there. Dr. Death, Steve Williams, Terry Gordy. I mean, just so much talent was in all Japan when you were there. I mean, it's just crazy. Oh, yeah. Great. Great. I know, uh, as you mentioned, yeah, Dr. Death, and there's a couple right there, and Terry Gordy, those Japanese used to run from them because they would. There's an old saying that uh, – you know, if if all of the wrestlers from the back dressing room are standing out watching the match, you know that somebody's getting beat up. So every time mm-hmm. Steve Williams and Terry Gordon were going to ring, we had to go out there and watch because it's like, okay. But here's a great, uh, a funny story. I'll tell you this one, and uh, about J- Japan is and Joel Deaton is funny. He even tells me to this day. John <clears throat> uh, Baba, we were, I think was in the Budokan. We were in there for. I don't know, probably 10, 15 times while I was over there. And uh, there was a couple guys that was just, you know, getting over pretty strong. And then I was kind of new when I first went in over there. And I'm like, okay, I got to do something. I'm just coming off the Midnight Express thing. I had the Midnight Express jacket on and had one made with the, the uh, a fixture airbrushed like a, a bullet train and then had the, the Midnight Express on the train deal. You know, so I'm like, well, I got to do something, you know, something really powerful and strong when I go out to this freaking ring. So I come up with this thing. I went to a magic shop and got this flash paper, you know. So I had it underneath that jacket. And as I come out to the ring, probably about 60,000 Japanese out there. And I started shooting fire out of the end of my jacket in my hands. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'll never forget it. I went ahead and had my match, and I came back to the ring, and that Bob, the first time he actually ever talked to me, he goes, Randy, Randy Rowe, come here. You, no, you no can do fire. Fire marshal, run us out of building. No fire. <laughs> you burn down building. And I'm like, oh, my God. And Joel's like, every time he talks to me or sees me like on Facebook or something, he'll go, yeah, I remember the night Baba told Randy not to do no more fire. <laughs> That's great, though. I mean, it's such an innovative kind of cool thing to do. Oh yeah, I was I was like I gotta come up with something. So you know, set yourself off. You always gotta have some kind of little song. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. You gotta be different. Was Joel kind of your traveling buddy? Like, who's traveling with you in Japan? Because you think there might be a little bit of a culture shock. I know you've obviously been there a few times, but is there a little bit of a culture shock? Are the the gaijins, the Americans, or the, you know, the guys that speak English? Are they all huh, kind of hanging out together, drive, driving together? Is Joel your kind of riding partner? Yeah, basically him and Abdullah were, uh, they, they basically put us on one bus and then they put the Japanese wrestlers on another bus and then we used to travel around the country over there. And uh, I thought it was, it's kind of, this is another little funny scenario is some of the Japanese guys would ride on our bus sometimes and they would holler at me and like, Randy, Randy Rose, you, you know, uh, I, when I first went over there, I learned some of the Japanese, because back in the late 80s and 90s, I don't know if people remember this, but, you know, the subways in Tokyo, and they was keeping us mostly out of Tokyo, but the subways in Tokyo didn't have American and English writing on it. It had just Japanese. So I studied a little bit and learned how to read, you know, to get on the sub. I would get on the subway from the town that we were in, ride back down to Tokyo, which was one of the only places you could get American food and uh Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's and all that stuff. So I'd get on that subway and ride down, get off to Tokyo, get my food, get my groceries and all that stuff, come back. And by the time we hit the bus the next day, all the guys would be going, okay, you know, because this bus would stop probably only three or four times. And the only place it would stop would be like the noodle places. So you'd spend 18 to $20 Japanese uh to, to get nothing but noodles. And here I am sitting in the back of the bus eating my cookies and my apples and my McDonald's and all that. And they're like, oh, oh, Randy Rhodes, you're cheaper, boy. You eat the groceries out of bag. And I go, okay. So by the time two or three of those trips, they they already got to where they, they're tired of them noodles and they come to me going, oh, okay, can we get apple and orange and cookies? And I go, no, you call me cheaper, boy. <laughs> <laughs> they were begging me for food after a while. That is great, though, that they kind of have like a good, funny camaraderie with you guys. Yeah, yeah, pretty good. And then mm-hmm. they would. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, no, you go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No. What I was going to say is that then someone would go, "Oh no, you, you, you Abdullah's boy, you, you Joel Deaton's boy," and I go, "Hey, that's all right. Somebody help me get a trip over here and make twenty, thirty grand. I'll be anybody's boy. It don't matter." <laughs> Good point. As far as like them knowing English and stuff, like being able to communicate in matches, I'm always like very curious of that. Do they know English? Do you guys know Japanese? Is there just an unwritten, unspoken language of professional wrestling that everybody just kind of can understand? Well, back then, I guess that is that is a good way to put it. Back then, there kind of was, you know, it's just we kind of knew uh, basically what the other guy was going to do before we'd done it. 
they they knew very little English, you know, a little bit here and there, but you know, like you like you were just saying, this kind of an unwritten rule of what's what's going to do next. Uh, and I I used to really cherish that because, you know, uh, so much is going on now with the wrestling that I don't agree with, and I really never agree. And I and I'm not really talking down about it. I know it's entertainment and. And I don't agree with Vince McMahon coming in and telling every, all of that because, number one, uh, a great magician, David Copperfield, never went and told his audience how he'd done his tricks, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, we never told anybody that we weren't really punching you out or running around and doing this and that. But, you know, like I said, 80% of my stuff was real, and then especially in Japan. And so... I never really agreed with that, and I don't agree with it to this day. But as you, what your question basically was, is could we gel in the ring without talking? Yes, mm-hmm. we could, and we never had to sit down like they're doing today, and script out every match and every interview. We did it all on our own, and by, in other words, play it by ear. Do you watch current wrestling? Do you really follow it, or not interested in the current product? I'm not really interested too much in the WWE just for that reason, you know, because I have a lot of guys that uh, were my friends, still my friends, and our bodies are beaten up because of it, and we protected our business back then, and I really don't appreciate, you know, somebody coming in and and doing that to our business is what they've done in order to become a triple billionaire or whatever. And there's so many guys that are right now that are beaten down, that's lost their lives, that travel all over the world, their bodies are torn up. And, you know, I just, I don't agree with it. I don't watch it a lot. Sometimes I'll watch the AEW stuff, which is pretty good. You know, mm-hmm. I agree with some of that. And, uh, I just I don't know. It's just uh, it's a different it's a different game nowadays to me. And I really not you know I watch to see what they're gonna do, and, and see if I agree with that or or look at it and go what kind of crazy stuff they're gonna do this time. So, but uh, there's still a lot of good and and I'm not taking away from that at any means that there's a lot of great athletes that are in it today and all, but it just don't have the gel to me if you got something out there that you're scripting and. You know, you're going out and going, okay, well, this is that. and Because even when we'd done interviews back then, we would, you know, we would go out there and just play it by ear. You know, it came off of the off of the brain. And you either got over, you know, from, from your intellect and, and, and your gimmick uh, that you put out there, not because some Hollywood scriptwriter was telling you what to say. They seem to have a lack of um, originality, I guess you could say, a, la- a lack of creativeness. A lot of the promos are scripted. You know, they're not allowed to kind of be their own character. Is that kind of totally against what pro wrestling should be? I mean, shouldn't these guys kind of not be reading off a script and sound more real? Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of an oxymoron, is it, now that everybody's – I mean, the best man's always went around and said it's entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, but there again, and I'm not in any sense bragging anymore, but, but uh, back when we did it, it was possibly 80% real because we really knew how to do the holds. We really knew how to do the, the landings. We knew how to do the talking. We, you know, everything was, it wasn't scripted out behind the scene in the back dressing room. It was played out in the ring and either it worked or it didn't. 
feel like there's something in wrestling that needs to go back to old school. Not necessarily everything needs to change, but I mean, there's something that really worked then that they changed for no reason. You know what I mean? Like it didn't need to change or it was working. And, and you know what I mean? It's just one of those things that uh, wrestling evolved, but not necessarily for the better. Right. Absolutely. I agree with that. I, well, I'll go back to the, uh, to the hall of fame thing is some of the guys that went in there with me this in 2019 was Ronnie Garvin, one of the toughest, meanest workers in out of North Carolina and all that too. Uh, and let's see, Abdullah was there. Uh, they actually put Owen Hart in there with us and uh, a couple others, too. So I thought that was pretty cool. This You're talking old school, so there's some of your really good old school actual wrestlers. Yes. Love Ronnie Garvin. One of the, like you said, legit tough guys. Great worker, great wrestler. And I had the opportunity to work with him, um, I'd say about maybe two years ago, was it? Uh, Harley Race was next to us. You know, he was wheelchair bound at this point. And I said, Ronnie, you know, you're known as one of the toughest wrestlers of all time. And I said, I go, so is he. And he looks at Harley. He goes, oh, man, my buddy Harley over there. Yeah. I said, do you think you could take him? Like, you know, who, who's tougher? <laughs> and, he, and he looks at him. He goes, well, right now, maybe me because he's in the wheelchair, but I'm not sure. So it was just one of those funny things where he, you know, he is, is tough, but he's very humble and very respectful too. Yes, yes. Harley Race is one of the toughest in the business. People don't know a lot about him, but he was, and Ronnie Garvin always was. And, and going back to some of the things that I believe in, and, and just the way I'm looking at it today, as it was, and I still always say this, and people probably say I'm ancient or old school or whatever, but. That's all right with me because that's the way I learned. I learned how to wrestle in the ring before I learned how to be a showman. Uh, and the marquee will always say wrestler wrestling. It won't say in my book entertainment. Yes, good point. Now, where did you actually like learn to wrestle? I know you probably debuted somewhere around 74-ish. Who was your trainer? How did you kind of break in? I trained... Uh, Probably around, started breaking around, I guess, around 76, 77. I trained okay. with an old Mexican wrestler out of Mexico, uh, Al Velasquez. Nobody probably ever knows who he was, but he was tough. I mean, he could really, really show show you some different holds. As, as I said, you know, I learned the holds first. Then I learned, you know, the flip-flops and flies. Uh, I used to train daily with the old Samoans. I don't know if you remember them, Afonsica. Oh, yeah, definitely. And they would put you through the grinder. We would start off every morning with about uh, probably calisthenics, weightlifting. Then we would do about an hour on the mat, and then we would do handball. I mean, it was a three three or four-hour-a-day situation, and they put me through the grinder. And uh, I trained with a lot of different guys that just, you know, helped me learn, you know, the real art of wrestling. And I feel like that is something that is missing for sure. The actual, you know, the art of wrestling, if not all high spots and false finishes, I mean, there, there's an art to it. And they definitely are missing that, that aspect. I feel like there's something missing there. I know I said it before, but there's something missing that I wish they would kind of go back to and, and from old school wrestling. You know what I mean? Like that's something that they definitely should look to. I do. I do know exactly what you mean, but I don't know if it'll be able to go back. It's probably gone too far the other way. But let me ask you this question. If, we'll see if you were an old school fan or wrestler. 
uh, who had better actual wrestling matches? Have you ever stood or watched tapes of Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk? Mm-hmm. Yep. They got them on, uh, got them on VHS tape and DVD. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my God. I could sit and watch them for hours. And then there's stuff like, uh, wrestling too. And, and, uh, even Ric Flair, I mean, he, you know, you can talk to him and he w- he was a consummate wrestler. I mean, you know, before he became a showman and an entertainer and, but I mean, you know, there you go again, you can call me old school or whatever, but, uh, that's just the way I was brought up and the way I was trained. And that's, Try the way I usually tried to work, you know, I would I would throw a little uh, little pizzazz in there, you know, with the long blonde hair and the strutting and all that crap. But mm-hmm. when it came down to it, I liked the the analogy of locking up and switching holes and and you know, making a match, a wrestling match. And I love the old Briscoe Funk that you mentioned. That go back and watch them. I mean, they're still. It's, you know, people are like, oh, old school wrestling may be boring. No, go watch Funk and Briscoe. Not boring at all. They're awesome technical wrestlers, and they are just, you know, grinding, but it, it's real, and, and they really look like they're in a, in a fight, but it's just great athletic competition. It's great wrestling. I, I love especially uh, Jack Briscoe. He's just unbelievable. Dory Funk is amazing, too, but I love, love watching some old Jack Briscoe. Right, and then you mentioned Harley Race. He was one of mm-hmm. the best ones, too. Bob Orton Jr. That's another one that helped train me. Ricky Gibson. Uh, those those guys put them in the ring, and you were going to see wrestling. As far as you and kind of you know breaking in and 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 working through, do you have some kind of like favorite territories that you work? Because you literally, I mean, if you think about it, Georgia, and you mentioned Memphis before, and AWA, obviously WCW, and we didn't really even mention Florida. You went down the championship wrestling Florida. Uh, Houston Wrestling with Paul Bosch, Big Time Wrestling with Fritz, a uh, few tours in Japan, IWE and All Japan. Do you have kind of like a favorite place or a favorite territory? I think my favorite was probably Southeastern with the Ron Fuller organization. I was treated well. You know, I, I, I was able to, instead of, you know, being the political situation that some of it that I discussed earlier is uh, – he would let his guys uh, have a chance to move up the card. And uh, there's not very many territories back then. Well, there's none now, which really ticks me off there again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But back then, there wasn't many territories that you could go and stay longer than a year or so. Well, I wound up staying at least four or five years in Pensacola without having to leave. And it was an awesome place. An awesome place to live. Uh, it was great. You made good money, and you got to work and really, really learn your your craft. I feel like a lot of the wrestlers that I speak to love Southeastern. They love Pensacola. They love the beaches. They love the woman. They love the driving because it wasn't <laughs> too far, and they love the payoffs. Yep, everything was pretty good down there. Ron Fuller ran a good ship, I guess. Good, good territory. Yeah, he was a very, very good uh, businessman, not just for the wrestling. I don't know if anybody knows it or you know it, but he wound up after that owning a, a hockey team, uh, mm-hmm. yep. uh, a couple other things too. And uh, every time I see him, he's always got his hand in something. He's got irons in the fire. Right. That's for sure. And as far as you and kind of retiring, and I guess it was around somewhere around 92-ish, you kind of stopped, and I know – 
come back and you and Dennis team for a little bit in the 2000s, did a little original Midnight Express stuff. But why did you end up kind of leaving the business when you did in, in around the 92 era? Uh, I just, uh, I think I had a, I don't know if it's back then or not. I started having some back problems and, uh, I actually wound up having a hip replacement here in the last five, six years. The body basically was telling me it's time to quit. <laughs> I understand that. Yeah, it makes sense. And how are you feeling now? I mean, you know, the new hip and everything, you're feeling good? You're, you're mobile? Doing pretty good. Yeah, not not bad. Is uh, I, I like to uh, tell the wife every day that, uh, she was really never a big wrestling fan, but, uh, you know, they, and the people don't realize even, you know, today, like I said, I still respect those guys in the ring, even if they're Vince McMahon saying, oh, it's all entertainment. Well, those guys are still putting their body on the line. They're still taking bumps on a freaking uh, piece of plywood with tin and a little bit of foam and a mat over the top of it. And it beats your body up no matter what you do or what anybody thinks. You know, it's not fun in games. And you get into that ring and you throw your body around like that 350 days out of the year for 10, 15 years. Oh, yeah, it's going to take a toll. Now, as we hit the wind-down button, head towards the finish line, do you have some favorite matches or maybe some favorite opponents through the year? Because, I mean, we talked about working in Southeastern and obviously teaming up with Dennis Condry, you know, awesome tag team, throwing a little Norvell Austin, Midnight Express. Do you have some favorite matches and maybe some favorite opponents through the years? Well, yeah, like I was saying earlier, uh, Bob Orton Jr., Ricky Gibson, I wrestled them. Russ, Mr. Russin, too, I had his uh, – Last match when he left Atlanta, moving back to Hawaii, was his his very last match in Georgia. That was a pretty one. I got it on tape. Uh, strictly wrestling. Uh, there was quite a few guys that I really enjoyed. Harley Race. Uh, I loved working with Harley Race. Uh, there's just there's so many of them. It's just hard to pick out one of the best ones. And would you say Dennis is the favorite tag team partner that you had? Because he had quite a few. I would say, yeah, me and Dennis gel better than just about anybody. Dennis was always great. Yeah, I mean, he's a great wrestler anyway, but always great in tag team. Something about it. He just, uh, with you, he gelled. With Bobby Eaton, he gelled. He was always a great tag wrestler. Right, yeah. Now, as far as you and, and the business, do you have any regrets in wrestling? Is there anything that you kind of left on the table or any thoughts of, of you wish you did this or wish you did that? <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know how this might sound, but I wished I had, uh, uh, came out of the Midnight Express thing and went and got the name, uh, trademarked. Mm. <laughs> right. So anyway, but that's one thing. I mean, I could have done that, but, uh, other than that, no, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And, uh, as I tell a lot of people who ask me why I've done it, uh, I got to see the world on the promoter's cash, you know. Otherwise, if I hadn't have done that, I'd probably been staying at home working for my dad in a construction company, and that's what I'd have been doing the rest of my life. But I got to travel to Australia, Japan a few times, New Zealand, Korea. Uh, Saipan was wrestling. I wrestled uh, Bam Bam Bigelow in Saipan. Whoa. Whoa. Nice. Whoa. Saipan. Still got the T-shirt. 
and I got to see the world and the country, all the U.S. states, and just about. And uh, it was it was a very good experience, you know. And I was telling you before, I'm from Asbury Park, the home. Everyone always asks, the home of Bam Bam Bigelow. So nice there, little tie-in there. Very cool. There you go. There you go. Oh, he was a heck of a worker. Bless his heart. Yeah, for a big guy, everyone always says like he was easy, nimble, awesome to work with, one of the best workers. Yeah, very much. Paul Orndorff, guys like that, there were some good workers that I worked with. Now, as far as you and when, like, let's say the chapters close and even for, like, a Hall of Fame scenario, when people are looking at Randy Rose and they're just looking at your career looking back, what's, like, the, the lasting legacy or what's the stamp? that you would say you leave behind in your wrestling career? Well, I don't know, and I didn't mention this uh, earlier. And there again, I'm not I'm not the uh, the bragging type, but I will tell you some of the things. I wound up, and I don't know if people know this about what I've done after some of my career, was I got into a situation with uh, the MDA, Muscular Dispy Kids, and Jerry Lewis. Got to meet Jerry Lewis, as a matter of fact. And I went to a couple of camps in the state of Georgia. And then I got to, with Joe Petticino on Channel 36 and mm-hmm. Bonnie Brookstone and all that stuff. And I started uh, doing some different shows to collect money for the telethon. I did the telethon for actually probably 10, 15 years and did that with wrestling matches around Georgia. And then I wound up taking about 10 guys every summer at summer camp to entertain and put on matches for the kids at the summer camp, the MDA camp. And there's nothing more exciting. You know, I've been in arenas with 20,000 people here and there, but there was nothing more exciting to have us with about 80 to 60 kids in wheelchairs and put them on a wrestling match and have them screaming and hollering. And uh, it, it was just an honor. And as a matter of fact, I, I wound up doing that for 20 years for them. And uh, I just thought that was pretty cool at the end of my career there. That is awesome. I definitely uh, didn't know that. It's very, very cool. And, and that's even something better than you know, being a wrestler and doing that. I mean, giving back. And it's unbelievable. Right. You didn't know that one, huh? No, I didn't realize that. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, the kids got together and gave me a plaque. It's pretty cool, the last thing. And uh, like I said, you know, you can, you can go all right around the world and all that, but when you do something like that and you see the excitement in those kids' eyes sitting in a wheelchair knowing that they'll never walk, but they are very excited when they do that. But every summer for that uh, probably 15, 18 years, we put on a show for them, and, and it, was, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Totally, totally uh a career benchmark. That's, that's awesome. I would have uh, guys bring the ring for free. I'd have 10 or 15 guys come out and work for free, and they loved it as much as I did. So just to see the excitement in the kids' lives. Yes, very meaningful and very powerful. I love, I love that. Didn't realize that. That is really, really cool. Now, as far as plugs and maybe bookings or social media, do you have stuff like out there? I mean, are, are you out there kind of uh, promoting yourself or you're kind of quiet as far as social media and plugs and things like that? No, not really. I don't really promote myself that much anymore as far as that goes. Uh, I have my own business out of Atlanta, and uh, I do some different car shows around the country like, you know, Daytona, Pigeon Forge, and 
uh, Charlotte and stuff like that. But uh, I don't really promote the wrestling much anymore. I do have some people call me once in a while and want to book me for that and all. And like I said, uh, when they'd done that for the Charlotte deal, the gathering, I thought that was that was pretty phenomenal. And I really respect uh, Marty up there. And I, I appreciated that too. And then the Hall of Fame thing. But uh, no, they're not knocking on my door every day for the wrestling. But that's 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 okay. I may I've done my my stint, and you know I enjoyed it, and I I still love it, and I don't mind getting out there signing autographs at any time. So you know that's that's fine. But I don't promote it that much. All right, awesome stuff. Awesome to kind of get a very rare interview with Randy Rose, the original original. Midnight Express, Randy, thank you so much. Awesome to have you on. I really appreciate it all the time. Thank you, buddy. It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, as you just said two or three times, original, when you go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, you always get the original. <laughs> right. Awesome stuff, so Randy. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.